Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in for what's going to be another packed, crammed time together. We've got so much to get through. I will be reflecting on the significance of the by-election, the Lib Dems' colossal gain in what should have been on what was a safe Tory seat. Does it matter? What does it signify? Do by-elections matter? And somehow, kind of neatly, this will develop into reflections on Keir Starmer and Prime Minister's questions and his reshuffling of his team and so on. Then we'll move on to your questions. Quite a lot on that by-election, of course, but loads of other things as well. A few really sophisticated bread-making techniques. The kind of number of listeners making bread on a scale that threatens the future of bakeries around the country. Um, So a bit of that and much, much more besides. So a lot to get through as ever. Before we begin, now don't go running yet. Don't start baking the bread. Don't start ironing yet. All the things that go on while you listen to the podcast. Get a pen, make a note. Uh, The show is live back at King's Place in the main hall. Obviously socially distanced because Freedom Day, Freedom Day has been postponed uh, until sometime in July and who knows what the situation will be there but I can tell you this King's Place in the main hall will be the safest place in the world probably uh, socially distanced but we will be having fun live on the stage again like the olden days and you can get tickets on the King's Place website it's Monday June the 28th next Monday yeah it'll be streamed as well for the global audience of rock and roll politics i'm not quite sure yet what our themes will be together uh, but i think part of it will be to reflect on what's happened since there was last a live gathering because in politics it all connects and interconnects and the consequences of one set of policy feeds into another the rise of personalities doesn't happen by chance and so on so anyway um it is forming in my mind and it will well we will make sense of things and get your tickets now they're running out obviously the physical ones um also by the way i'm going to be uh doing two other live shows in july uh one at the uh great rope tackle art center in shoreham on the south coast that's uh thursday july the 15th it's virtually sold out but uh they got in touch with me the other day and so they're going to put a few more tickets on sale so that's if you live in on the south coast anywhere on the south coast get to that and on sunday july the 18th live 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 at the greenwich theater Each one will be completely different from the other of these live shows uh, because so much moves so quickly anyway. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm coughing. Uh, It's not COVID. Uh, So that's, yeah, the tickets there are on the Greenwich Theatre website if you're in that kind of part of the world. Uh, It would be great to meet up there. Now, by-elections. First of all, do they matter? And the answer is, not always, but quite a lot of them have profound significance. Uh, To give a really vivid example, 
the Eastbourne by-election in the early autumn of 1990 triggered a series of events that brought about the fall of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, the Conservatives uh, had this safe seat of Eastbourne. The by-election took place in a tragic context. The local MP, Ian Gow, had been murdered by the IRA. Gow, a devotee of Thatcher's, very close to her and had been her parliamentary aide and other things. Uh, so uh, it was in such a context that an assumption was widely held that the Conservatives would retain the seat. They lost by a big margin and a sense was reinforced in the Conservative Parliamentary Party in particular that Thatcher had ceased to be this potent vote winner. Uh, if you lose Eastbourne and the poll tax was going on and all kinds of other things, you felt you were in deep trouble. And that was a by-election with profound consequences. To go a bit further back, a uh, by-election I sort of covered from a distance. Uh, take one, let's pluck one out of the air. 1983, the Darlington by-election. Now, you're, none of you lot were born then, I know, because, you know, we're such a young audience together. But that was a by-election with all kinds of consequences. Here was the context. The general election was looming. Everyone knew Thatcher would call an election uh, in the early summer of 1983. Labour was in deep crisis. The SDP Liberal Alliance had, in February 1983, secured a sensational victory in Bermondsey, a Labour safe seat for decades. The Lib Liberal SDP Alliance, it was a Liberal candidate in that seat, Simon Hughes, won a huge majority in Bermondsey. Michael Foote was leader of the Labour Party and there was talk of removing him and putting Dennis Healy in place. And those speculating about this from within the Labour Party were saying this. If Labour lost the Darlington by-election, they would make their move and try and put Dennis Healy in instead. Meanwhile, there was much talk of this alliance replacing Labour in second place at the general election. So the Darlington by-election took place in this context and the SDP made the mistake of selecting a weak candidate. That was the beginning of a dramatic campaign that virtually the entire Labour Party went to Darlington to fight it. Epic rallies each night, the likes of Neil Kinnock packing halls to such an extent that there had to be second meetings somewhere else to get more people in. Michael Foote was up a lot, Dennis Healy was up a lot, even though some thought it would be in his interest for Labour to lose and he would become leader. Labour selected a very good local candidate, a guy called Ozzie O'Brien, and they won it. Uh, and the SDP momentum which appeared so advanced with the Bermondsey by-election, was halted. And that had all kinds of consequences. Michael Foote was safe. From that moment on, it was absolutely clear he would be the Labour leader 
that took them into the 1983 election. The alliance that had appeared, although somewhat erratically in post the Falklands War, in a sort of electorally potent position, suddenly looked more fragile. And indeed, Roy Jenkins, who was kind of leader of the SDP wing of the alliance at the time and was called Prime Minister-designate in that 83 election, struggled from Darlington onwards. And of course, we all know what happened. Labour was slaughtered in 83, but came second in terms of the seats by a huge margin over the SDP. Uh, and that was partly to do with that Darlington by-election. Things might have been very different had Labour lost that Darlington seat. So there are two examples of why by-elections can matter. Does last Thursday's victory for the Lib Dems, or to put it, I think, in its more potent context, the heavy defeat for the Conservatives, have that level of significance? Well, we don't know yet the degree of significance of the by-election, but I think it is considerable, partly for this reason. Boris Johnson's authority within the government and the Conservative Party has not been down to his brilliance as a policymaker. Privately, many observers of Johnson Tory observers within the government and the parliamentary party are scathing of his capacities as a policymaker uh, and as someone who can focus on a range of issues and master detail, etc. But they were in awe of his abilities as a vote winner. And his omnipotence over the government was even greater after the May elections when the party gained Hartlepool and did reasonably well in the local elections. Conservative MPs concluded, uh, well, you know, we can see his flaws, but most voters apparently can't, and he is the one that can keep us in power and can help us retain our seats. To suffer a loss on the scale the Tories suffered last Thursday, breaks the spell uh, that Johnson has wielded over his party because it raises questions about the whole febrile state of British politics. Uh, some of the questions have been posed regularly since the result. Have the Conservative Party in its wooing of the so-called Red Wall, began to lose its base in relatively affluent parts of the South. And with what consequences in terms of its longer-term future? So I think that is the main consequence of the by-election. It also legitimizes a degree of internal dissent within a party. When a leader seems so overwhelmingly popular, it's very hard to legitimize dissent against that leader. The leader is taking them to the promised land of electoral victories. But if a leader seems less 
potent as a winner. Dissent is legitimised. And so that is interesting. That has consequences in terms of policy. So this phrase, levelling up, as we've all explored on this podcast many times, is not only a vague phrase in that the policies that accompany levelling up are still far from clear, but much more than that, levelling up is a sort of bit of a con, really, because it implies no one loses. You know, it suggests that poorer areas can be pushed up to the level of affluent areas. You see, the term redistribution has quite often been a problem for Labour. Blair and Brown never used the term because it's a more honest term in that it implies that some lose in order for others to benefit. Redistribute wealth from some to others. Leveling up imply no losers. But you could tell in that by-election, and for what some Tory MPs have been saying since, is that they feel their constituents will be losing out in the focus of the levelling up agenda in the red wall area of Tory seats. So I think the levelling up slogan, which is what it really is at the moment, will be called into question. Uh, There's been a lot of focus on the issue of planning and the impact that had on the by-election. You know, the whole not-in-my-backyard house-building programme. And that in itself raises questions about one uh, one of the other Johnson slogans, build back better. What does that mean in practice? Uh, Is the market going to determine where the houses are? Because that's where the jobs are, in which case these areas in previously solid Tory constituencies will be targets of the building. Or is the building going to be done in the hope that jobs will accompany the building elsewhere? It's always a complex question. The new Labour government, which did a lot for public services, didn't do much for housing because it's a bloody difficult question to answer. Where do you put them? And how? Johnson hasn't even started to answer these questions. Meanwhile, you can sense there's a newly emboldened Rishi Sunak at the Treasury. I talked a bit about how Sunak has become more muscular since the fall of Cummings, who had put him, in effect, in the top job at the Treasury, Chancellor. Uh, But he's become more emboldened now. I don't know if any of you read the Sunday Times on Sunday. Their splash, their lead story, was about tensions between the Treasury and Number 10. And it obviously came from the Treasury, in some form or another, looking to cause trouble, saying Johnson makes announcements about spending without consulting anyone. And that, again, is his sort of governing style. Announcements are confused with policy implementation. He's a journalist. An announcement can be the equivalent of writing a column. But where does the money come from? How do you then implement the policy? With what agencies? These questions interest him less than the impact of an announcement. And here, too, I think there are tensions which can have more space to develop in the context of a by-election defeat that few had expected. So it is 
a moment, I think, of some significance. As I said at the beginning of my spiel, we won't know immediately how deep this goes. Obviously, we've got another by-election coming up, Batley and Spen, and the Tories could well win that. And that will unquestionably be a triumph if they do, to gain seats from the main opposition party when you're the governing party um, is a triumph. It doesn't happen very often. And for it to happen twice is extraordinary. But last Thursday's by-election slightly changes the narrative of that if it happens. Uh, from unequivocal, unqualified triumph to, well, hold on a second. Is it now just the kind of red wall where we're making progress, the Tory question? And are we losing support in areas that used to vote Tories as a result? And there is another point as well, which is Brexit is still defining British politics. I think it is too simplistic for Tories to brief, oh, this is all about planning. It's not. For voters to switch sides, even in a by-election, they need a wider sense of unease about the side they normally associate with. And Brexit is that context. You cannot go ahead with the hardest of possible Brexits without some of your Remainer supporters noticing. And when you have Johnson and his non-elected, mediocre, jingoistic negotiator, Lord Frosty Frost, spouting nationalistic nonsense, uh, and meanwhile continuing to cause high levels of chaos over Brexit, there will be consequences. And Remainer Tories will continue to contemplate alternative parties while Brexit is still so dominant. Conversely, in those Red Bull seats, clearly there is a gratitude that Johnson has delivered Brexit for them. Now, whether <laughs> that manifests itself in any material well-being in the years to come, I strongly doubt. In fact, I fear for them the reverse. But that's a different issue to how they perceive things at the moment. So Brexit is driving a lot, which brings me to Starmer briefly, uh, because we talked a bit about this last week, about how silence on an issue that is defining British politics is not an option for the main opposition leader. And as I said last week, it hasn't converted, from what I can tell, a single Tory voter to the Labour cause, especially in the Red Wall. You have to find an argument about what is happening and to challenge the Johnson, Lord Frosty Frost version of events powerfully, regularly. Um, and, and Starmer's failure to do so is one of his, his big failures as leader of the opposition. Another occurred on, uh, as an example, during Prime Minister's questions last Wednesday. If you remember, 25 minutes or so before PNQs, Dominic Cummings published texts uh, of his exchanges with Johnson about poor old uh, Matthew Hancock with Johnson texting that he, to Cummings that he thinks he's useless and all the rest of it. 
Now, there was quite an interesting discussion on Twitter as to whether Starmer should have referred to those uh, texts. And I think he should have done. Not the whole six questions, but he, Starmer, you might remember, went on the Indian variant and whether Johnson was culpable for it spreading in the UK, which of course he is. He didn't close the borders as quickly as he should have done with India. So what you do as a leader is you frame all six questions around the issue of his, Johnson's, judgment. And so you do four on the Indian variant and pose much tougher questions about his judgment in terms of keeping the borders open, in effect, with India, allowing people to go back and forth to and from India. Four questions on that. Framing it around his capacity to make the right judgments. And then you add two in about the Cummings texts. And it's not about Cummings, although it is obviously connected to Cummings. It's about judgment. And first of all, you ask what Hancock is still doing there if you think he's useless. What, is, what does that tell us about Johnson's judgment? And what does it tell us about Johnson's judgment? That he employed Cummings in the first place as the most powerful special advisor in number 10 in the history of such posts. When he's now leaking private texts aimed at destroying Johnson. You do it about the judgment. And most PMQs should be framed around that single issue, the judgment of Johnson as Prime Minister in this pivotal period of British politics. And that's the way you do it. But he didn't mention it at all. Some people think he was too slow and didn't even know the... Uh, arrival of these latest uh, interventions from Cummings. Some thought he cautiously decided not to do it because he didn't want to cite Cummings because he's an unreliable narrator, etc. These were texts. Use them, but as part of a wider argument about, uh, or wider case you have to make about Johnson's capacity to lead and govern. Anyway, that's what I think about the by-election and all these other matters. What about all of you? We've got tons of questions. I'm sorry if I don't read yours out this week. They will get a chance, I promise you, in the weeks and months to come. But obviously, let's start with the uh, by-election. And uh, the first question is, hold on, I'm just bear with me. Keep running, baking the bread. I've just got to get to the questions. Okay, the first question is from Stephen Petrie, who says, thanks for your brilliant podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Stephen. Which I listen to as soon as it drops into my notifications. That's great. Thank you. I do enjoy the lifestyle stuff. Yeah, there's going to be a bit of that. A bit of that. Some, some purists uh, who are anti-pleasure. You know, a bit against it, but most, I think, it's great. There's a bit of bread stuff still to come. Um, while I haven't tried any of the recipes, I can claim to have expanded your global audience, having recommended you to a friend in the American Midwest who's now a regular listen. Shout out to Eric. Hi, Eric, in the American Midwest. Welcome along to the rock and roll politics crowd. Thank you for listening. 
Anyway, uh, amongst uh, the points that uh, uh, Stephen makes is, my question is whether it's too early to say the tide of opinion about Johnson is beginning to turn. Recently, things haven't gone his way. The G7 wasn't the victory lap he had hoped. The Chesham and Amisham by-election showed his vulnerability. And questions about his judgment, the thing I said Starmer should frame his questions on, on pandemic management continue. While this certainly doesn't signal a flood tide, it might signal the beginning of the ebb, the tidal ebb. Yes, it might. Um, it, it is always hard in the midst of these fast flowing events to make an assessment precisely where the tide is going at the moment. Say the Conservatives might well win the by-election in July in Batley and Spen, uh, which will give him a boost, but as I said, in a slightly changed narrative, given the by-election in Chesham and Amersham. Uh, but it is interesting that when a governing party and Johnson lose a seat. I do think it changes perceptions a bit. And then all the misjudgments he makes is seen in a different context. But, but as, as you suggest, uh, it is an ebb, um, the beginning of an ebb. Uh, we're not at the tidal wave bit yet. And no doubt a poll will come out tomorrow showing Boris Johnson 50 points ahead or something like this. Uh, Louise Davis-Jones, uh, she's emailed a few times because things are moving so fast. You have to email again and again to respond to different events. How much do you think this by-election result is an early revolt against populism, poor governance and mismanagement? Um, uh, uh, cuts to foreign aid, questionable trade deals and Johnson himself. I think it is more than this sort of planning issue, which the government brief was the main reason they lost not the government but there was a sort of view um, that became a sort of orthodoxy that it's all about fears of housing being built uh, it is more than that because as I said you've got to have permission to yourself really to vote even in a by-election against the party you normally support and I do think it raises issues about the way Johnson is perceived amongst those who follow politics quite closely um, and who didn't support Brexit. Brexit is the reason he is Prime Minister. And Brexit is the reason mainly, though not wholly, he has managed to get himself into those red wall seats. Um, so uh, there are deep things going on here. And Brexit is still the, the, the story that is defining politics, in my view. Uh, Andy Kemp... Uh, writes says I've been listening to your podcast since episode one and note that you're now approaching your hundredth yeah you're right Andy I'm trying to work out what to do for the hundredth um not 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 imminent but it's quite soon uh, what a crazy political period this has covered yeah it has and the show rock and roll politics uh began I used to call it rock and roll politics as a kind of way of attracting young people to theatres to hear about politics and get involved um, and I claimed it was a metaphor for politics being all shook up. But actually what has happened is that politics has become all shook up since I started the live show. Uh, he wonders, does the Lib Dem victory in Chesham and Amersham uh, demonstrate the need for opposition uh, parties to formalise their approach to defeating Conservative candidates? 
Um, and do you think that Batley and Spen will be decisive in, in this? I don't think there will be a formalising, Andy. Uh, Pre-election packs are very, very hard to negotiate. Uh, and just to go back briefly to the SDP Liberal Alliance, they had a nightmare dividing the seats up, who was going to fight one, whether it was the SDP or the Liberals. David Owen fumed about the fact they were having to give up seats to the Liberals and so on. It's too difficult. But cooperation between non-conservative forces is possible, and of course, tactical voting. Uh, Naren Patel writes, I've been an avid listener to your podcast, particularly on my morning walk with the dogs. Yeah, that's a nice, relaxing way to listen to podcasts. Um, I wanted to know that despite being conservative all my life, oh yeah, this came before the by-election result. This is this is this shows you. You see, this is from an authentic Tory voter in Chesham and Amerson, uh, and this is great. So this came before the by-election. I wanted to know that despite being conservative all my life, I've decided to vote Lib Dem in the Chesham and Amersham seat. It's probably a wasted vote as it's a Tory stronghold, but I feel the Lib Dems have a real chance. I hope this makes Boris and his pups take notice and hopefully bring back some levels of integrity into government. And Naren <laughs> wondered whether this was going to be a wasted vote and then wrote to me again to say obviously it wasn't after the result. But you see, here is an authentic voice, Tory voter, voting Lib Dem, and it was about integrity in government. And I think Johnson is, he, he's got away with it all his life. He's pushing it, the, the things he says and does and encourages in a culture uh, in government where you say things that are at odds with reality, to put it politely. You do other things that push the rules and break the rules. And here is a Tory voter who voted Lib Dem on grounds of integrity. Judy Frew, after the result, says, Chesham reflects the more general realignment taking place in British politics. That was a quote from the Daily Mirror on 18th of June. And Judy says, to what extent is this true? Or is it just wildly optimistic nonsense? I think actually what they meant by that realignment was also the fact that the Tories now hold seats in the north of England that used to be Labour strongholds. And so the realignment is taking place with uncertain consequences at the moment. But I think it is, Julie, don't you? Something big is going on here. Um, and it is, it is very interesting. Uh, Jeff Strange writes, he says, oh, still listening to your brilliant podcast as we quarantine in Dublin. Magical city with magical people. I agree, I've just been reading Dubliners by James Joyce. It really makes me want to go to Dublin tomorrow. But I can't because I'll have to join you in quarantine for weeks on end. Um, he says, it's amazing to get a different slant on British politics from here. Uh, essentially, they all ask, how on earth did we end up with Johnson? Um, and he says, the big news here, of course, is Poots going. Um, yeah, I, kind of Ireland at the moment is so extraordinary. 
and he notes, I mean, sort of, you know, that, that they're all obsessed with it, rightly in Ireland. And Jeff notes the consequence of Johnson's sea border is seismic, although he still won't admit it to it. And Frosty keeps doing those in denial uh, union, keeps donning those in denial union socks. Yeah, yeah, Frosty now has taken to wearing these union jack socks. And, but I bet you get from Dublin a real sense of perspective. Uh, about the way this government in Britain is perceived over Brexit and this unbelievable contortion that we all reflected on last week whereby you agree to a protocol and then blame the EU for the consequences um, for a protocol which was part of an agreement which you, Britain, or Frosty and Johnson, claimed was a triumph. Um, uh, thank you for the Dublin perspective. Adam Calf, big fan of the podcast, although sadly no bread making while listening. I'm very much stuck in contemplative stage while hearing about other listeners' tasty exploits. Uh, yeah, well, that's uh, contemplative. I think you can do some of these exploits and contemplate. I hope so, or else no one else is listening except for you, Adam. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the type of narrative Labour should be making to the nation and wondering about the conclusion of the Morgan report that the Met is institutionally corrupt. It seems to me there's an opportunity to create a narrative based on integrity, honesty and openness. Well, that um, chimes with uh, our voter from the by-election, a Tory voter who voted Lib Dem as a protest on the issue of integrity. So there is a way that a skillful, supple Labour leader weaves these themes together, judgment, integrity, and so on. Um, and there is space there. It is tough for Keir Starmer, who's, you know, now having to reconfigure his whole leadership team, you know, the office team. Um, but there are openings for him, uh, which I think so far he has missed. Uh, Leslie Buchanan, still enjoying your show as I wander the streets of Barcelona on my way to the gym. Yeah, well, lucky you, Leslie. I remember, yeah, I remember that you, you're there in Barcelona. Um, I listened with dismay to BBC's Any Questions the other day, as first Hilary Benn and then Leila Moran urged both sides, in inverted commas, to show flexibility over the Northern Ireland Protocol thereby buying in to this narrative uh, that it is kind of both sides at fault. Yeah, I kind of agree, Leslie, I spoke about this last week. It is the UK government that signed up to this and now wants to renege on it. So it's not equal responsibility. Uh, the problem these opposition politicians have got is that in a battle between the UK and the European Union, so many of the voters say, oh, yeah, yeah, come on, Britain, let's show these European bus." Do you remember? None of you will, because you're all too young again. But John Major, he didn't believe in it at all, fought a beef war. It was called the Beef War with the European Union. And Tony Blair, who was then Labour leader in opposition, this was about 1996, had to pretend to support the Beef War. He knew it was all absolute nonsense, but he also knew it would be popular. And that, I suppose, is the dilemma they face. But they've got to frame an argument about this. It's not going to go away. 
And there are ways, I think, of framing an argument in which you can engage with voters about the damaging consequences of the decisions taken by Johnson and Frosty virtually alone, two figures uh, without um, much scrutiny move towards this, which they're now trying to disown. Um, Cam Barath uh, writes, uh, we've seen President Biden starting to rebuild the US international reputation and status, repairing the damage caused by Trump. Um, how long will it take for Johnson's successor, assuming it's someone uh, in the same mould, to repair the damage being caused by Johnson's approach internationally? I suppose you mean Cam in the same mould as Biden. Um, he's, and Cam's still listening whilst commuting between Coventry and Birmingham New Street on not-so-empty trains. But well down on previous numbers. The last time Cam emailed, said he was, I was on my, uh, he's on his own on this train, listening in splendid isolation to the podcast. The answer is it won't take very long at all uh, if um, a figure comes in that has a sort of acceptance of international rules and domestic rules. Um, you can still be radical, as Biden is showing, on domestic policy. You don't have to be a kind of rule breaker to create change of profound uh, consequence uh, but uh, there we go oh yeah now Venetia Kane is do you remember she emailed last week she's on a tour of Scotland or she was then going up all over the place listening to the podcast without breaking the speed limit she also wrote about the by-election but she before that she said this is just to kind of live vicariously for those of you not on holiday at the moment um, I took the faster route south from Grandtown on Spey this morning, so had to plug you to my ears at a point further north to ensure that I arrived at Kinross services in time to jiggle safely to your closing music. God knows what the people at Kinross services thought of you jiggling to the music, uh, Venetia, but, I, but it, the journey sounds great, and I went neither slowly nor above the speed limits. And now I've made it to Berwick-upon-Tweed. I've heard that Cummings has indeed produced some new evidence. So you must have been in Berwick just before PMQs last Wednesday. Um, should Starmer have gone on, on it? Was it not worth doing? Was he not quick-witted enough? Well, I've kind of discussed that, Venetian. By the way, thank you for the photo of one of the uh, locks you were driving past. I mean, I view these things and hear about these things, say, with a vicarious thrill and envy. Um, I think he should have done it at uh, PMQs and I suspect he was not quick-witted enough. You can learn to be quick-witted. It doesn't have to be a natural instinct and uh, he's, he's, he needs to learn it fast. You've got to think on your feet and be mischievous and uh, witty and, and, and all of that. You can If you use wit it kind of is more effective with things like Cummings interventions. Okay, uh, Anyan Malik writes, uh, of all the fantastic questions you were asked, this I think refers to the last podcast, it occurred to me no one is mentioning your tremendous voice impressions. Oh, well, thank you very much. It has been an overlooked quality. Thank you for, for highlighting this. Uh, oh, yeah, now, 
kind of mix coming up. There's something very Mike Yarwood in your style. And then brackets, much needed bracket. I promise you this is a compliment. For our younger listeners, Yarwood was a legendary impersonator. But in the 70s, you know, which kind of, yeah. Um, when I hear you doing Blair Johnson, it's as if you're doing an impression of how Yarwood himself would tackle modern day politicians. Well, I genuinely am, am flattered. Flattered. Fluttered? Both. Fluttered and flattered. Thank you very much. And he kindly adds, P.S. Don't forget to arrange a live show up north sometime. Yeah, well, actually, I, the north being a big place, this might be of no use. But I'm going to a great art centre, the Witham Art Centre in Barnard Castle in November. Uh, a friend of mine runs it. I'm going to uh, go there and do a show in November. So please come along and tell your friends, however far away you are. Um, that would be terrific okay um oh yeah now this is the moment you've been all waiting for i know a brief break from the depths of our analysis of politics for uh, how about this this was from helen now helen emails regularly and uh, she and i disagree about whether corbyn is anti-semitic personally uh, about the Miller bans. She thinks David should have got it. I think that is unprovable, that things would have been better under David. Anyway, forget all that. She listens to she listens to the podcast whilst making bread, and she sent in the bre potato bread recipe for all of us lot. Now, I haven't got time to read it all out, but I will give you the ingredients, and then, you know, she, she's, in, she's invited me around to sample it, and Helen... As long as we don't discuss the millibands and all that, I'm going to take you up on it. Maybe we should discuss it. I'll give you the ingredients. I haven't got time for the rest. If you want the rest, maybe in August during the a lull in politics, although there isn't one really, I'll read you the full thing out. But it involves one large potato, water, yeast, sugar, strong bread flour, salt and olive oil and um oh yeah it's fantastic it looks quite labor intensive uh helen um although i've got the detailed instructions which puts me in a very privileged place thank you very much and on the same theme um simon lockyer has sent in his recipe i discovered bread making during the first lockdown um, as my wife has an allergy to lactose, I make a dairy-free loaf. It doesn't use yeast, so it makes a heavy loaf, ideal for soups. And yeah, the recipe, God, plain flour, wholemeal, multi-seed flour, salt, baking powder, soya milk, a lemon juice, white wine vinegar, uh, all kinds of things. Um, and, and then you put it in the oven for 40 minutes uh, at gas mark 220 so you kind of, oh, it's got sun-dried tomatoes. Oh, living the dream, Simon. Uh, back to politics, he says, Simon. I don't think it would make sense for Labour to get rid of Starmer at all, uh, as that all that would do is open up more divisions rather than anything else. A leadership contest probably would be divisive. I think Keir Starmer has a bit more time and space to develop as a leader. But I think it would also be a mistake for the Labour Party not to contemplate a change of leader if it looks as if they are heading towards a fifth successive election defeat. Uh, for a party to walk 
towards that, knowing that that would be its fate without contemplating a change, would be highly in character for Labour, but perhaps a mistake. But you're right, you know, leadership contests uh, are rarely... I remember Tony Benn when he went for the deputy leadership in 1981 against Dennis Healy, a really dramatic campaign. Um, he said, I think you'll find that all elections in the Labour Party are a healing, have a healing effect. Um, well, healing is hardly what that one did, and leadership contests rarely do. They can do, though. They can do. And they can produce winners at certain points. Uh, but let, let's see what happens in the coming months. Uh, James Munro notes, I uh, noticed the Labour Party are so preachy and lecturing all the time, but they don't seem to be anywhere closer to power. Indeed, the further they are from power, the more preachery, pe preachy and lecturery they become. Well, that's interesting you feel that, James, because there is an impression when voters are asked what Labour stands for, they, say they don't know, they haven't a bloody clue, which suggests if they are preachy and lecturing, uh, people aren't really responding to the message because the sense is the message isn't clear rather than there is a sort of lofty preachiness uh, but evidently that's what uh, you have detected. Al Neil says I don't agree with you about backing the 2016 referendum result it was advisory. I have full respect for the Lib Dems in uh, their solidarity in imposing Brex opposing Brexit. Um, yeah well, the, the problem is, I think that although theoretically it was advisory, all those who took part said it would be binding. And just looking back, um, I think that the hung parliament was the great red herring of 2017 because it gave us all hope we could stop the bloody thing. Whereas we probably should have all been reflecting on how we could make it the softest least damaging Brexit possible. He adds, Al adds, it's a shame that Labour backed the trade deal. I agree with that, you about that. Uh, it's put them on the back foot, yep, along with this clunky silence over the whole issue. Uh, thank you. Stephen Townsley uh, said he was taken aback by my remark. This is connected. If only Parliament had voted for Theresa May's deal. Well, this is a kind of reflect retrospective thing, Stephen. I wasn't arguing for it at the time. I used to cheer when each vote she got defeated, but it's a it's a better deal than the current one. Uh, Stephen writes, it would have put Britain into a customs union uh, because of the Northern Ireland backstop. Yeah. Labour had negotiations with Theresa May in early 2019 to come to a joint position that would allow a deal. However, that broke up. Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't have been able to whip his MPs on almost any deal. I agree. It was, it was not going to happen. And there will be a fascinating tale to be told about that hung parliament. It would be like a thriller as MPs agonised over how to deal with this Brexit issue and couldn't unite over any proposition at all. And it's, it's, it will be like a thriller involving John Burko and everybody else that hung Parliament between 2017 and 2019. Was it a lost opportunity or was every attempt to deal with Brexit doomed? Uh, yeah, so what's the final question? Oh, uh, Margie Phillips, uh, one of your correspondents mentioned, you're all called correspondents now, 
not mere questioners. We are all elevated correspondents. Mention the possibility of a non-official inquiry taking place. Um, about uh, COVID and she says there is such an inquiry currently going on it's the people's COVID inquiry organized by a group called keep our NHS public and it's chaired by Michael Mansfield uh, it has two uh, it consists of two hour video sessions when usually four or five witnesses give testimony uh, so yeah uh, so it, it is happening in in one form. All of sessions are available on Keep Our NHS Public's YouTube page. So there is an inquiry going on, uh, and that's where you can uh, keep up with it. Uh, and you know, given that the public inquiry is not going to start until next year and will probably go on for about fifty-five years, uh, it might be interesting to uh, follow that one. Uh, so thank you very much for informing us, Margie. And thank you for listening and all your brilliant questions. Uh, hopefully bread has been baked, runs have been run, boats have been rowed, and dogs have been walked, and canals have been walked, and gyms have been gone to in Barcelona while you've been listening. Just a reminder, uh, take a note, book those tickets for the live show at King's Place on June the 28th. Try and get to the main hall. It will be like the olden days. If not, it will also be streamed like this new era. It's 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 the link between the old and the new. Um, and yeah, who knows where we're going to be in a week's time. But thank you for listening. Keep the questions coming and have a great week. Bye. Bye.